Welcome to episode 189, The ICD Meets the DSM, What U.S. Clinicians Need to Know, featuring Dr. Jared Keeley. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. This episode is proudly sponsored by Best Notes Electronic Health Record, software build for practices poised for growth and compliance. Visit bestnotes.com slash clearly clinical for a free demonstration. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am joined by Dr. Jared Keeley. He is one of those unique individuals who has the clinical experience as a psychologist and also the interest and experience with classification and diagnosing and coding. And I'm just so glad that we're having this conversation today because I feel like so few of us have received adequate education about the classification systems for mental health professionals and for mental health diagnoses. Thank you so much for joining us, Jared. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, Beth. I'm very much looking forward to this opportunity to speak with you and your listeners. I've been a longtime listener of the podcast. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, thank you. Um, So why don't we start by first you sharing a bit about yourself and how you came to specialize in understanding the ICD, which for our listeners, that's the International Classification of Diseases. And I'll let Jared talk more about that. Um, But it's a really interesting specialization. So please tell us about your background and how you came to zoom in on this. Absolutely. Um, So I'm a fan of the fortuitous moments that happen in one's lives. Um, So I certainly never imagined that I was going to be a classification researcher. That's not how I started off on my journey. Um, Originally thought I was going to be an autism researcher, Um, but through a couple of kind of loops of where I landed. So my graduate program was one where we kind of did a selection of mentors kind of after arriving. And I landed with a person who did classification research. He knew it when I was kind of um, interviewing. I didn't quite know it yet, but he knew that this was what I was going to be good at. Um, and I ended up launching into this world of the ICD again through some fortuitous events. So my advisor's name is Roger Blashfield, um, had a student at the time, uh, Beth Flanagan, who was doing studies on how mental health professionals organize mental health disorders. Um, specifically, she was borrowing from cultural anthropology, a concept called folk taxonomy which is the notion of studying how indigenous various or any kind of group organizes things in its world and thought this would actually apply really well kind of to studying mental health professionals as a culture um, and thinking about how, how we could we understand what these professionals do and the way they think about these concepts. Um, I got involved in it in the sense that like the Beth had gathered all of these data about how mental health professionals organize disorders using this methodology. And my advisor came along and said, I always hoped that we would turn this into like a a quantitative model, right? So we could actually kind of like map out what's happening here. And so that became my master's thesis. Thought nothing of it for many years. Um, The person who is in charge of the ICD-11 development by the name of Jeff Reed, it's worth noting he's a psychologist, by the way. Um, And so that's kind of one of the first times that's happened um, where that wasn't a psychiatrist who was driving. But um, he was one of the three people who must have read this paper um, and said, that's exactly what I want. I want to be able to kind of look at how mental health professionals organize their thinking around these disorders because I'm trying to apply this to 
dozens upon dozens of cultures across the world. Um, I know that mental health professionals think and operate in different ways in these different places. And I want a way to investigate that so that I can think in a systematic and applied way about how that might translate to how we structure this classification system. Um, and so I ended up kind of like coming on board, helping out with that project and snowballed from there. Um, where I landed was something called the Field Studies Coordination Group. And so I think it's an important caveat, actually, before we get much further to say that I was a member of this group. And so we're part of the perspective I'm going to share today is sort of the making of the sausage. Right? I kind of saw some of this happening from the inside. And so I think that's a useful perspective to bear on how this ICD operates and how it looks relative to DSM and a lot of these kinds of questions in terms of its development and its usage. Um, I also just want to make sure to state up front that I am not a representative of the World Health Organization, which is the um, organization that's responsible for developing the ICD. But anything that I share today is definitely my opinion, and I'm not um, representing their perspective. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us. Um, let's first start by explaining what the ICD even is. Because in the United States, unless you happen to be one of the folks working in quality improvement or auditing, we don't even have a copy of the ICD on our bookshelves, many of us. So what in the world is the ICD? Please give us the 101. Absolutely. Um, so the ICD is a product of the World Health Organization, as I had mentioned. Um, in fact, actually, it's one of the WHO's constitutional responsibilities to create this document. One of the first things that happened when the WHO was formed, uh, was back in uh, 1946, was to start development of ICD. Um, the reason was that there was a clear recognition that if the goal of the WHO, which is to promote the health of all individuals in the world, was to be realized, they needed a way of gathering information about the health of said individuals. Um, and so, of course, every country out there kind of has its own health system. They have their own way of operating. They have their own things that their health professionals do. But for the World Health Organization to operate, they needed a common language. And so that's what the ICD provides. And so people have certainly talked about one of the purposes of any classification system being a common language for the professionals who are using it. Um, and so that's really where ICD started, was to provide that common language across all member nations of the WHO. How does one even begin to do that, to look at the different ways that various cultures view disease? Even that is just a big bite to take. Big bite to take. Um, well, the development process for ICD is somewhat similar to what you might kind of imagine if you've learned about the development process of DSM. It's largely a work group structure such that there is an individual who's kind of appointed to be in charge of a pro the process. And then they kind of go and find people who are experts in different areas. They sit those experts together in a room perhaps more virtually nowadays, and have them hash out what are the things that need to change? What are the things that make sense? What are the things that don't make sense? Um, I think it's worth noting that we've already started to talk about comparisons between DSM and ICD. One of the major differences is that ICD is a classification of all health conditions. 
Mental and Behavioral Disorders is one chapter thereof. It happens to be nestled right in between neurology and endocrinology, if you happen to look for it. Um, but it is included in the entirety of other health conditions. And I think that's also really important is that ICD does not differentiate mental health as different from physical health in that respect. And in fact, has been kind of maintaining that stance since the 1940s, um, since it was founded. That mental health has always been included as an important part of health. Interesting. So looking at the ICD as an international tool, you had named a certain number of countries, I want to say 190-something. There's 190-something, and honestly, I, I would hate to misquote it because it does change from time to time depending upon new people joining. But yeah, it's roughly, you know, let's say close to 200 member countries. And the idea here, just like with the DSM, is shared nomenclature. That if we can put something in a category about a person or their condition, they ought to, in a perfect world, be able to go to another place with that information and have it convey additional detail for a provider. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so one of the, the interesting features of the ICD, so if you were to Google ICD right now, right, and kind of go and kind of look, the first thing you would find is a long list of codes. Okay. that is little more than a number, a name, and a two to three sentence description. Okay. Um, what you're finding is actually the version of the ICD that's called the statistical version. Right? Um, so ICD is published in different varieties. So the statistical version is what most of us think of when we think of ICD. Right? And that is literally nothing more than a number, a name, and a two to three sentence descriptor. The statistical version is largely used for things like hospital coders, right? So people who their job is to do nothing more than kind of go through doctor's notes and like code and say, okay, what was billable in this, right? And kind of what condition were they treating and, you know, like that sort of thing. Um, most of us encounter the ICD in a similar way when we're thinking about billing. Right, is that we kind of have to put in a code number, right, so that that goes to some insurance provider somewhere, and then they use that to justify to say, yes, these services are, you know, important and need to be provided. Um, that statistical version is never really been meant to be diagnostic in any sense. Like, that's not a diagnostic manual. I don't know how you could make a diagnosis from two to three sentences and a name, um, especially in our world. Um, in other areas of medicine, it maybe isn't as problematic, right? So if you have, you know, a, you know, um, a rhinovirus infection, it's a rhinovirus infection. You know, like the name is pretty descriptive. For us, we say major depressive disorder. Okay, we've got one of the symptoms now. But there's others, right? It doesn't. It's not as descriptive in the same sort of way. Um, so ICD is also published, at least in the mental and behavioral disorders chapter, in three other forms. Um, one is something called the clinical descriptions and diagnostic requirements. This is the document that, if we were to kind of look at the DSM, looks the most like it. Right? So it's the document where it actually fleshes out, okay, here's all of the requirements. Here's the other features of the disorder. Here's how it relates to gender. Here's how it relates across demographics. Here's how it looks across age ranges. You know, and kind of includes all of that other stuff that we typically get when we were to go look at the DSM. Um, that manual is specifically developed for specialists. Right? So like individuals who are listening to this, you or I, we are people who are knee-deep 
maybe a little higher, and mental health, right? This is kind of what we live and breathe. We make very fine distinctions between disorders. We have kind of a lot of knowledge and background. Um, that's important for some purposes, right? So like, again, like we might make a big deal about um, treating generalized anxiety disorder differently than social anxiety disorder, right? So at our level, we might have totally different treatment approaches for what we would do in those conditions. Um, ICD recognizes that not every purpose is going to be met right by the same manual, right? Other professions, other purposes might actually kind of be better met by a different format. Um, and so there is the statistical version that we talked about that is really just for coding purposes. There's a clinical version that's meant for mental health specialists. There is a research version. Actually, that kind of says we, the purpose of this manual is to provide better operational definitions for the purpose of research that maybe actually would be too rigid or misplaced in some way in regular clinical care. Um, we might talk about that distinction a little bit more um, later on as we go. Um, there's also a, another version specifically designed for primary care providers. And so there's a recognition that the level of specialty needed for Kind of mental health provider is overkill when it comes to somebody who's kind of operating in a primary care setting, right? So if we go to your average physician or pediatrician or kind of like those other primary contact points of the health system, they don't have all of that background training. They don't need to make a distinction between GAD and social anxiety disorder because it's not going to change the nature of what they do at that level. Right? They're going to say, oh, you get an anxiolytic and a referral to go see Beth instead. Right. Um, and so there's kind of a, the primary care version is a boiled down simplified version that kind of like has a handful of major mental health categories that are the most commonly seen in primary care settings. And then kind of a in, set of instructions on treatment guidance to say, like, here's appropriate ways to respond to these things, as well as referral guidance to say, like, here's when this should go to a specialist instead. I have so many questions. Shoot away. So... Thinking of the ICD now in version 10 as an international system, goodness knows the evolution of diagnosing is highly cultural. Mm -hmm. And what one culture may consider non-diagnosable, if you will, and we could pull from some diagnoses historically in the DSM that we no longer use, mm -hmm. what happens when you're trying to marry this international system with a cultural construct used by a particular country? So in our case, the DSM. Great question, Beth. Um, so the way that WHO operates, so like um, every member country has agreed that they will provide health statistics in this ICD coding structure. Okay. What the WHO does not require right, is that it has to be exactly that structure. So every country has the right to adapt it. So you were talking about ICD-10. Actually, ICD-10 is the previous version. Currently, ICD-11 has actually just been released. So ICD-11 was officially released in 2019 with the expectation that countries would adopt it by 2022. You'll note Right. Thank we you are, for correcting me. You'll know, we are presently using ICD-10 in the U.S., aren't we? Ah, okay. um, <laughs> and so actually, I should note, I wanted to kind of provide a caveat for anybody who is listening from a country other than the U.S. I apologize. I am not deliberately excluding you. It's simply that the conversation we're having today 
each country does something different with the ICD. And so really to have the conversation, we need to be embedded within one country. And talking about the U.S. is a really good example because the U.S. does a lot of things that it's really not supposed to when it comes to the ICD. Um, so as we were saying, each country has the right to create an adaptation of the ICD. For the U.S., that is the ICD-10 Clinical Modification, or ICD-10-CM. You might have seen that acronym before when you're using your coding structure. When you're going to the DSM, right, in the DSM, there's a set of code numbers. Those are ICD-10-CM numbers. The ICD-10-CM is a product of the U.S. National Center for Health Statistics and the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. They create a crosswalk for what they want to be included in kind of the U.S.-centric view of what needs to be covered and what exists in the, the corresponding ICD. Okay. Um, so technically speaking, each country has the right to do this. And in a number of countries just kind of adopt ICD wholesale. They say, you know what, we're not making any changes. This is what it is. Other countries are actually kind of like the U.S. where they create some level of adaptation. There are other countries that have specific mental health classifications like the DSM. Right? So the DSM is a product of one disciplinary organization, the American Psychiatric Association. Um, other countries, so actually I'll, I'll pick on the uh, People's Republic of China for a moment. They have historically also had a classification system specific for mental health, Chinese classification of mental disorders, CCMD. Um, so there's other countries out there that have an analogous situation where clinicians are primarily using one manual and then they have to kind of create a crosswalk between that manual and what is existing in the ICD. Right? So there's two levels here, right? So one level is that there's the version published by WHO that the U.S. has adapted. And that adaptation actually incorporates, again, all areas of medicine, right? So it's not just mental health that they're worried about there. Then there's the DSM that has to create a crosswalk between its concepts and what's in the U.S. version of the ICD. So the ICD-10-CM in this case. Um, if you'll, uh, if you'll permit me, we need to take a brief historical side journey. So the history of the DSM and ICD is long and storied. So in fact, the, um, the DSM has actually always been developed in concert with ICD. So those things do not occur independently. They are not in a vacuum. Um, and there specifically is a harmonization process that occurs for each of these. So... For example, like as the WHO is working on a new version of the ICD, typically what has happened historically is that the DSM would be upgraded at the same time, right? So they would go through a revision process in parallel. And then the people who were part of kind of the process sometimes were actually the same people, right? So they might be on kind of like um, both processes. Sometimes they're different, but they would meet with each other and say, here's what's going on. And there was deliberate attempts to make sure that the two manuals did not diverge radically. Right? Now, it doesn't mean that they couldn't say, oh, there's one concept in here that doesn't exist over there, right? Um, or that there is you know, a reason we might decide to kind of code something differently in our manual versus what's done in the other. But for the most part, there was deliberate attempt to actually make them line up. Right? It's worth noting here that ICD-10 was harmonized with DSM-4. So ICD-10 came out in 1990. 
uh, DSM-4 a couple of years thereafter. I believe it's 94, if I'm remembering right. Um, so when we as the U.S. adopted ICD-10-CM, you might remember, again, all this kerfuffle of people saying, like, oh my gosh, we're adopting this new system, the codes, ah, what are we going to do? That occurred in October 1, 2015. 25 years after ICD-10 was actually released. <laughs> so you might be saying to yourself, self, why? Why would that happen? Um, the U.S., again, feels that it is special in some particular way. And so it delayed the adoption of ICD-10 year after year after year. Um, there was substantial lobbying. In this case, it actually wasn't mental health's fault. This lobbying was largely coming from other areas of medicine where the codes weren't radically different between ICD-9 and ICD-10. And like, we don't want to have to go through this major process to upgrade all of this. Um, and so that lobby delayed that process for 25 years. Wow. Speaking as somebody who on occasion will be knee deep in a chart, a mental health chart doing an audit, seeing that we're still using ICD-10, so much so that I as an auditor didn't know about ICD-11. <laughs> Thank you for the correction. Why is it that we haven't adopted it even if there was this expectation in 2022 that we would have implemented it? Is it the same reason that we were delayed in the prior? Absolutely. It all becomes very political in nature. Um, and then again, the way that the US political system operates is largely through lobbying, right? So what would actually have to, what the, ad, what the adoption of IC-11 would take is literally an act of Congress. Right? Um, and so that process is suspect to all sorts of lobbyists, special interest groups who say like, we want this to happen, we don't want this to happen. Um, and as it turns out, the medical insurance world is a fairly successful lobbyist. Um, and so they have put a fair amount of effort into, well, let me put it this way. It costs them less to lobby, to delay it, than it does to revise it. And so it becomes a business decision of it's cheaper to funnel money into lobbying to keep this static than to go through this major update. That's fascinating. So for you, someone standing on the outside, are you willing to make a guess on timeline? Oh my gosh, I wish I could, but I'm pessimistic about it. Let's say that, mm -hmm. right? So ICD-11 is harmonized with DSM-5, right? So most professionals probably right now are using a, either DSM-5 or DSM-5-TR, which by the way, diagnostically wouldn't make much difference. There's kind of, I know um, Dr. Rue talked about there's really fairly minor differences when it comes to diagnostic criteria for there. Um, but the concepts that are in DSM-5 are aligned to actually ICD-11. So they have to do this really funky crosswalk to try to line them up with ICD-10, which is actually DSM-4 concepts, if we're trying to equate them. So there's new disorders, for example, that have been introduced in DSM-5. What do you do with that? Right. Um, this partially goes back to answering one of your earlier questions, Beth. So like for a country maybe that has a particular disorder that they recognize that's maybe culturally bound in some way, right? It's not kind of recognized in a lot of other areas. Like um, a good example would be Hua Byung, which is a um, kind of a diagnostic category that's kind of used in Korea. Um, ICD structure is for every diagnostic area, there's the list of categories that kind of like are common or kind of like would be kind of labeled. There's also two miscellaneous categories. One is like, we'll go for anxiety disorders, right? So anxiety disorder, um, unspecified, which would be to say it doesn't really kind of um, fit anything, right? Or 
anxiety disorder, other specified. You might have seen that language introduced into DSM-5 in the last version, actually because it mirrors what's in ICD. They got rid of that not otherwise specified because that was lumping the two together. Um, so the other specified is a disorder that is kind of has a name. It has a concept. It has a definition. It's just not in our manual. Right? And so that's one way that flexibility is kind of worked into the coding system so that countries say like, so a clinician in Korea could just code anxiety disorder, not um, other specified, and then kind of note that that was Bobyang. That's really interesting. So effectively, in the United States, the DSM and the ICD are kind of hopscotching each other mm-hmm. all the time. And there's never really consistent agreement because they're on different timelines. Up until the last edition, that actually wasn't entirely true. So up until the last edition, ICD would be released and then DSM would be released like a year or two later so that it could be kind of like well aligned. Um, DSM-5 is the one that hopscotched. So DSM-5, again, this the development process for ICD-11 and DSM-5 started at roughly the same time. DSM-5 had a hard deadline that was not set, by the way, by the people who were developing it. It was set by the publication branch of um, American Psychiatric Association of that 2013 hard deadline. Um, that's what ended up hopscotching things, is that ICD-11 was like, eh, we're not quite done yet. <laughs> um, and so their process continued. And it was originally actually supposed to be much earlier, but it got delayed kind of all the way until 2019. They took a fair amount of extra time. Again, this wasn't necessarily mental health's fault. Um, one of the features of ICD that we were just talking about, right, which is kind of the, the statistical version has a code number, a name, and a descriptor. Up until the ICD-11, so ICD-10, most areas of medicine only had to do a code number and a name. And so for them, this was the first time they actually had to write these three sentence descriptors and it kind of blew people's minds. Like we, whoa, like we don't know kind of what to put here. And so that process actually delayed a lot of other areas of the classification. Um, We were used to that. Like we've kind of got really lengthy descriptions. Like it's kind of hard to boil down for three sentences for us. Um, But that was something that was new actually for the ICD-11. To conceptualize these two different worlds for me is a little brain breaking Mm -hmm. Um, just to try to organize what are effectively two different languages and try to make them harmonize. And for our listeners that may be wondering this, I, I want to further complicate by asking about CPT. So as Jared is talking, he's describing the ICD. And then we have this kind of sidebar conversation about the DSM. And just because we didn't have enough alphabet soup, (laughs) Beth decided, why don't we add in the CPT when we're talking about coding? Can you speak to that a little bit? Because there are so many different systems that we're keeping track of in our minds. And now electronic health records may be facilitating. Mm -hmm. But still, we're effectively talking about three different languages. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about CPT? You're right. That it gets even more complicated at that point, right? So there, what we're talking about is procedural codes, right? So it's not the description of the individual. It's the description of what the provider is doing, correct? Um, And that is an invention, again, of the U.S. health system. Um, so that again, like somewhere along the way, there became kind of like as part of kind of the 
the buildup of insurance systems and managed care, right? A recognition that, oh, just because you've got this diagnosis doesn't mean necessarily that everybody's doing the same thing with it, or that maybe we do the same thing for multiple diagnoses because it's an effective treatment for several, right? So there was a movement to kind of separate the diagnosis from what was the billable service provided. Right? And that's what the CPT code is supposed to represent, is that this is what I am doing in that um, system. Thankfully, I do not have a hand in that world <laughs> because that's even more complicated in trying to kind of operationalize different procedures that, you know, health professionals might provide and different services. Um, but again, there, oh, there's so much to unpack in terms of how those things interact, right? So like coming to X diagnosis in theory, like if we're talking about like the purpose of a classification system, coming to X diagnosis is supposed to help inform what I do with it, right? In fact, one of the major kind of criticisms a lot of people levy against DSM, ICD, and any other classification you want to name is that it doesn't always line up that clearly, right? There's not always like, oh, I have disorder X, therefore I treat it with treatment Y. So it's much more complicated for us. Um, and I think that's part of trying to capture that vagary as well. Right? So that, again, like we want to make sure that we're providing appropriate billable service. And I leave it to whoever deals with that at the insurance level to try to kind of tease apart what they want to say qualifies as an appropriate service. To piggyback on what Jared just shared, for our listeners, if you haven't done so already, conversations that are related to what uh, Dr. Keeley is discussing include a really great conversation with Dr. Ajeta Robinson, where she was talking about out of network insurance building billing. Excuse me. There's another one featuring Barbara Griswold, where she's talking about billing insurance for couples counseling, and she talks about some of the nuances between individual and couple counseling relating to CPT. And then Jared has already uh, briefly touched upon them, but the interviews that we have previously featuring Dr. Shiro Torquato. Uh, where she's talking about diagnosing, and then also Dr. Stephanie Wu talking about the DSM-5-TR and some of the changes and also some of the limitations in the United States mental health diagnosing systems. So quick little break. I encourage you to take a listen to those and we'll come back to Dr. Keeley right now. Uh, but so for our listeners, CPT, meaning current procedural terminology, as you're listening to this conversation, keep in mind that CPT is only, as Jared said, about what you're doing. So it's a procedure. So we had a session that was up to 45 minutes long. That would have a CPT code that we'd be billing in our electronic health record, for example, versus a conversation about the DSM or ICD, which is about the actual diagnosing. So thank you for staying with me in that little jaunt over to alphabet soup. So when we're looking at these two systems, one of the things that's occurring to me, the infamous Z code in the DSM, can you touch upon that and where ICD comes into play or doesn't with this kind of back section of the DSM? Yep. So for those of you who have been around for a while, like me, you might have remembered V codes in the DSM, right? And then they changed to Z for some reason. That's because of the shift between ICD-9 and ICD-10. Right. So in ICD-9, again, that which was harmonized with technically DSM-3, um, the V and Z codes were basically other 
areas of concern that a mental or a, any sort of me, a medical professional might um, choose to address. Right? So it includes a wide range of things. And actually, it's kind of all over the board. Um, if you are somebody who would really be kind of interested in diving into that, I'd encourage you to actually go and visit the statistical version. And you can kind of like open those up and browse through them. You'll be baffled. Right. So um, Beth and I, before kind of we started recording today, we're talking about some very strange codes that exist in that place, um, like being impaled by a light post. <laughs> That's one. Uh, there's also bit. And Orca, uh, which, yep. you know, two, these two codes are things that we never want to have happen to us or a loved one. But there are very interesting codes there. Indeed. Well, anyways, the letter comes from the, an ICD-10. Each medical area was given a letter, right? A through Z. And because of that, there's a limited number of letters in that alphabet. So it combines some stuff in weird ways. <laughs> so like they had to kind of merge things just simply because we needed an extra letter. Right. Um, and the Z codes were just simply everything else. Right. Um, that structure has somewhat survived in ICD 11. However, they moved away from a kind of um, a uh, Roman alphabet um, coding system to just a um, Arabic numeral. Right. So, kind of again, our standard kind of like digits um, of one through 10. You can have as many decimal places kind of and being able to account for things that way. Um, those codes still exist. And so you can still go and find all of these, but they have a, to me, more sensical organization because they're not all smushed together in an awkward way. But those actually all directly came from ICD. So to answer your question, um, DSM just adopted those directly wholesale um, from what's in the ICD. Not all of them. They just kind of picked the ones they felt were the most relevant, but they are wholesale straight from ICD. That's really interesting. Um, given that there's a change away from what was a V code to a Z code and now sounds like Roman numerals in the new ICD. I know that this is just conjecture. Do you suspect then that we will be doing away with a Z code as we call it for the next DSM? So it depends on how the US coding system progresses, right? So the DSM is going to pander to the US coding system, even though technically DSM is used other places. Um, they are still, again, like they feel beholden to the US system in a certain sense in terms of the way that they're developed. Um, and so you may have noticed you could have purchased a DSM early on, right? When they got um, released that had both ICD-9 and ICD-10 codes in it because they knew like, okay, we're still operating technically, you know, in ICD-9. We know ICD-10 adoption's coming. They put them both in there and then they kind of got rid of them. <laughs> so that you no longer really need the ICD-9 ones. Those are obsolete. And so now you, if you were to purchase one, you just got the ICD-10 code in there. Um, something analogous may happen. It depends on whether kind of they, they believe the U.S. is actually going to adopt the ICD-11 in any formal sense and when that might happen. They may have a better inside scoop on the timeline for that than I do. Um, but again, my, my pessimistic self is thinking that's probably not happening for a while. If the prior implementation timeline was 25 years. Exactly. <laughs> so when we open up the DSM and there is some diagnosis code associated with major depressive disorder, severe, recurrent, without psychotic features, and we could get more and more specific in that, there should be then a correlated code in the ICD-10, if not 11, eventually, 
when does that not happen? Oh, that's like, so are there, there are weird, there are weird examples. Yes. And I think a part of that is this extra step in between of the U S creating its own adaptation, the CM part of it. So the ICD 10 CM, for example, if you were to give a diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder, fairly well-established diagnosis, there's nothing terribly, you know, controversial about the notion. It has existed in ICD and DSM for multiple versions. For whatever reason, the code that's actually in there for ICD-10-CM is that other specified anxiety disorder, not the code that goes with OCD and ICD-10. I have no idea why, right? There's some weird crosswalk that occurred when the U.S., you know, the Center for Health Statistics and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, when they were creating their crosswalk, they thought it didn't line up appropriately. Maybe the symptom count was mismatched, Lord knows, but they don't line up. So there's lots of weird, random things like that, that you kind of, if you were to took a fine tooth comb and go through the coding system, you would find some very bizarre things. The kind of things that somebody like you would get really excited about. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Which is in a certain sort of sense, kind of an argument for saying, go to the source, right? Kind of look at the original code. And maybe that actually might be a better capture than kind of maybe the crosswalks because there's so, it's a game of telephone, right? And there's bound to be mistakes that occur kind of across the way. So does that mean then you have a numerical code that's assigned to a diagnosis and a description that may be duplicative where the code is the same, but the diagnosis and description are different. Indeed, that is a possibility in the way this is built. Again, especially because we're talking about apples and oranges in so many different ways, right? Because we're talking about trying to convert DSM-5 back to DSM-4 concepts in this funky way that the U.S. decided to adopt them from ICD-10, which doesn't necessarily correspond to what's in ICD-10. Like there, there's so many missteps in all of those possibilities, right? Like in a certain sense, we are comparing apples and oranges. They're all fruits, but they're probably some important differences. For someone like you, who's a clinician and has this really unique perspective this classification knowledge. Why do you think it's important for clinicians to understand the ICD, where it's coming from, how it intersects with the DSM? Absolutely. Because again, I think we may have to launch into a bit of a tangent if that's permissible by you. Yes. Okay. Um, one thing that bothers me about, let's say, academic mental health versus the practice of mental health in academic mental health, there's this weird kind of grown, I guess, culture that mental health practicing professionals are these fuzzy-minded individuals who kind of make these weird decisions, right? And they don't really kind of know what they're doing. And I think that's all a bunch of BS. Clinicians are very intentional, very well-educated individuals who care a lot about what they're doing and have a lot of experience. They have a wealth of built experience upon the people that they see. And so to me, in a certain sense, every individual clinician out there in their head has a classification system. Okay? They all have the concepts that they operate under, whether they call them the same thing as what's kind of in a structured manual, may be not, right? But they probably have some nouns, right? They have some concepts that they use to organize their work. In the world in which we live, we have to interact with a system that kind of, again, structures the work in a certain sense by saying like, we need a way of, con of having a common language 
for several purposes. One is to communicate with each other. One is for billing purposes. One is for et cetera. We can probably have a separate conversation about all the possible purposes for a classification. Um, but to me, an informed practitioner would want to be able to translate what they are seeing into the best possible descriptor, right? Um, so it's interesting, like you've, and again, I've heard this echoed in some things that folks have kind of talked about in other um, episodes. There's this sentiment somewhere out there that sometimes people will provide a code simply in order to get their person a billable, you know, diagnosis so that they can then provide services. Interestingly, um, some of our colleagues and some of what we were doing in the ICD-11 development, we actually asked that question of people and it's rarer than you would imagine. Um, most providers really want to say, I want to provide the best diagnosis possible because that's going to help me structure what I do for this individual as best as I can. Maybe at the start, I'm not really sure kind of what the full diagnostic picture is going to look like, all the kind of what Dr. Torquette was talking or Torquetta was talking about um, in, in her podcast. Um, but maybe it's something that evolves. But I do want to be able to kind of provide the best description that I can. And so if we are operating kind of assuming that everything is talking the way that it's supposed to, we actually might be missing the picture at times. Well, and what you just tipped your hat to is also an extension of the payer payee system in the United States and the complexity for those clinicians who are fudging codes around trying to get care for someone they believe deserves the care and needs the care. And then these limitations in the insurance system saying, we're not going to pay for it if you don't provide this certain list of diagnosis codes. It, it It's, again, this confluence of so many different parties and vested interests in trying to navigate for mental health professionals you know, I think for our conversation today, what's what's the purpose even of the ICD and how does it impact what we do and how we do it? And thinking for myself as a master's level clinician, I don't think I had any conversation in my educational program about the coding part of diagnosis. I could tell you Here's what separates generalized anxiety disorder from panic disorder, for example. But the rest was just gobbledygook. You know, it was something in the back of the book where there's like a code listed and then there's some dashes and maybe a period. Not to mention that you've already mentioned, you know, you've already mentioned it yourself, but what iteration of education we came in. So I came in medical billing in the past on ICD-9 because I worked in medical before I was in behavioral health and DSM-3, then to DSM-4, then to 5, then to 5TR. And with each iteration, our attempt to become more accurate is important. And it's also more information for a clinic or for a clinician to try to process and, and hold, to, especially when you have this hopscotching phenomenon happening. Absolutely. Yeah. Something that you're touching on there, I think is something I'd like to kind of delve into if I might, that's really an important distinction between DSM-5 and kind of ICD-11. Um, so the... And it kind of sort of alluded to this a little bit as well, is that the ICD-11 has this kind of foundational principle that it needs to be applicable flexibly, 
right? It has to be able to fit in different contexts, in different places in the world, in different languages, etc. And so built into the way the diagnostic kind of language exists, at least for the mental and behavioral disorders, is a certain degree of clinical judgment. There's a certain degree of flexibility. Whereas some of the historical influences on DSM-5 tried to trim that as much as possible, right? They tried to make it as rigid as a definition as possible so that it could be applied consistently, right? Reliability was a real concern. Um, ICD has taken an opposite tack of saying that, well, actually, we want to provide a degree of flexibility because we trust the provider to understand the context maybe better than we do. And so we want that provider to be able to say, you know what, I'll, I'll pick on major depressive disorder, right? So, you know, like it's two weeks, 14 days in the DSM, right? ICD, it's about two weeks, okay? If we were to take an individual, right, who is, is like showing up at day 13, right, would we legitimately say, no, I'm sorry, you have to come back tomorrow and I can give you a diagnosis? It's silly, right? It's kind of farcical. And so the professional would just simply say, yeah, you know, okay, that probably is going to be the case. Adding to that, I would actually go even a little bit further. Who the bleep would actually know, like, oh, yes, I've been feeling depressed for 13 days and 12 hours and 26 minutes. It, mood doesn't exist like that. Like, that's not what we mean by mood. It's not quantifiable in that way. When somebody says, I've been, how long you've been feeling down? It's like, oh, you know, a while. Like, I've been feeling down for a couple of weeks. Okay, how many days is that? I don't know. Like most of the time, that's not how it's measured, right? So like um, I, I use the term, and I'm coining this actually, borrowing this from Jeff Reed, of um, um, over-specification, right? So that, that definition is actually more specific than the thing that we're trying to measure, in this case, like mood, right? So like calling mood measurable by 14 days is probably specific because mood doesn't really operate like that, right? It's not measured at that scale. Um, and so one thing that I think is kind of, I particularly appreciate about development of ICD-11 is they've tried to step back from that, right? And say, actually, let's leave a little more wiggle room in the way this definition is applied so that the clinician doesn't have to go through all these funky hoops, right? To say like, oh, I need to provide a billable diagnosis, and so I have to kind of fudge, you know, the diagnostic criteria a little bit. They're given the leeway to say, this is the best applying code. That distinction is a really interesting one. I know in past conversations, for example, we talked about bereavement disorder mm -hmm. or a grief disorder and these different classifications. And it's interesting to me, particularly in the framework of quote unquote continuing education, because... I think if you got a hundred licensed clinicians of all different backgrounds, all mental health professionals in a room and said, do you know what major depressive disorder is? They would say yes. And we could produce without grabbing a book, we could produce some descriptions that most of us would agree on. And yet the ICD and DSM is changing in the background and in some ways becoming more rigid, as you said, 14 days, and in some ways becoming less rigid. And it highlights the whole concept really of continuing education to understand this background framework that many of us just forget about <laughs> because we're actually doing the work. Mm -hmm. 
we're not so concerned with the actual classification so much as we are doing the work in diagnosing and treating the depression, not the nitty gritty detail behind it. And again, it speaks to some of those different purposes, right, to the classification system, right? So like when you make a difference between 14 days and say like 21 days, the number of people that kind of qualify for that diagnosis drastically changes, right? We start talking about epidemiology. Epidemiology sometimes plays a role in that definition. They want to say like, no, no, we don't want to over-include. Now, I think there's maybe some conversation to be had there in the sense of like, how do we know what is the right level of individuals to have a particular diagnosis? seems like we're making a pretty big assumption on our part. Um, but nonetheless, like that sort of thing, like when we're talking about DSM, they're very concerned about those prevalence rates sometimes, right? And saying they want to make sure that that prevalence rate stays somewhat consistent because that means we're measuring the same thing. And like, okay, but are we? <laughs> Right, like that. that <laughs> um, and is that the concept that we're really trying to get at? Because again, like at the sitting across from the person next to you, your concern is how do I help this person? Right, it's how do I get them what they need in order to live a better life? I feel like you just introduced a thread, and I have to pull on it. Go for it. So, if we're looking at the epidemiology and how often a condition is occurring in the population. The idea that the the more specific a code or de definition or description becomes, the more the system can effectively trim away extraneous information. It's interesting because I, I was actually looking at some of the substance use data in different states recently, and I was really taken aback by the different states in the United States that have been identified to have the highest number of substance use disorders. And my brain started deconstructing, is this an accurate representation? Is this because of access to, to health professionals who are diagnosing this? Like, where is the cutoff? What you just introduced, I think, is a really interesting thing because most of the research recently is saying particularly post 2020, we are, as Americans, pretty depressed. And we are uniquely substance using. And yet, are you saying <laughs> that it's like, well, ha if everybody is really depressed, then we need to change the cutoff of how many people are actually, quote unquote, depressed? That is, I think, part of the definition of mental disorder that at least personally, kind of, I take into account, right, is that it's always in the context, right? Is it like a, the the only way we can define kind of what counts as functioning and not functioning or kind of things we want people to do and things we don't want people to doing, like that all comes down to societal expectations. And that's always going to be a moving target because societies grow, societies change, they encounter new things, they encounter new fads, they encounter, you know, new drugs. Um, and all of that is always going to be changing. So like when people sometimes say like, oh, like what's the last edition of the DSM going to be? I'm like, culture would have to stop, right? We'd have to stop as a society for that to ever occur. I remember making a joke to a client <laughs> last year, which was, if you're not a little depressed and I don't know if you're paying attention <laughs> because of the context of like yeah. the last few years of how many losses, mm -hmm. not just lost to life, but 
loss of opportunity, loss of connection, just enormous. Like I, I haven't met that many people that can say like, oh, the last few years have been really good to me. <laughs> um, but so that there is that contextual piece that I think is important to remember of the the baseline functioning is really interesting. So I'm thinking of other diagnoses that have changed over time. One that's standing out to me is autism spectrum disorder. Going from what used to be autism and Asperger's to spectrum, this is something you are very interested in. How did that change, if you know, the the diagnosing? Because if you open up a parenting magazine, you're going to get lots of information about how, how often autism is diagnosed, for example. But so how did changing the diagnosis affect how much something was suddenly being diagnosed or how or when? Absolutely. That's a really interesting question. And uh, I want to preface this by saying that, you know, like the, the original diagnoses of autism and Asperger's are actually due to a translation error. <laughs> I don't know if you knew this, but ha, um, so Leo Connor and Hans Asperger were working kind of more or less on the same project in a certain way in different places. Like they were both encountering kids that they're saying like, this doesn't, this pattern that I'm seeing with these kids doesn't line up with anything else that exists out there. And they were both defining what really was kind of the same notion. Um, but one was in English, one was in German. <laughs> and when the German version was introduced to the English speaking world, there was a slight mistranslation. And so there became that Asperger's disorder was somehow a separate thing and shouldn't be defined as the oh. same thing as autism. Um, when in actuality, they were kind of basically targeting the same psychopathological profile, admittedly in slightly different samples. Like, so one was slightly higher functioning than the other. Um, one had slightly higher IQ than the other, right? But for the most part, they weren't really intended to be different. And so what this kind of like played out across in history was that individuals were given these two diagnoses. There was a whole research world built up around distinguishing these conditions, right? And saying like, how is this one different from that one? And frankly, fabricating some differences. Um, they, and eventually the research world kind of spun itself back around to saying like, okay, so what is the difference? Right. We can't find it, you know? And then recognizing these really were never meant to be different things. And so in the classification system, arguing to say, let's marry them back together. Um, and as you're noting, right, it had this profound sociological kind of impact because people had identified with these diagnoses and come to different identities, right? And kind of ways that they thought about themselves, right? There was a huge pushback among the community of individuals diagnosed with Asperger's disorder, saying like, we don't want this label applied to us. This is a different term. It's more severe. It's more stigmatizing. Right? Um, and again, from like the, the science part of it, right? Looking at the, the definition of those concepts, they were saying these are not the, we don't want to call these different things because they're not different things. And that's all really that they meant by that. It was a huge PR issue, honestly. Like it was the sort of thing, like a good explanation, like I just offered, probably would have diffused a lot of that, <laughs> you know, but that, that, that didn't really occur for whatever reason. Um, and so what's interesting about that particular um, example in looking at the change in prevalence, because of that, it actually didn't change that much. So like autism spectrum, like it did capture a handful of cases that were basically dropped in those miscellaneous groups, 
right? So like the, you know, like pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified that was in DSM-4, a lot of those just basically got a diagnosis now because they didn't quite have enough of one thing or the other. You know, it's that sort of rigidness of the way the definitions were constructed. Um, and so the prevalence, basically everybody who had an existing diagnosis still had a diagnosis. Like it was fairly rare for there, there to be a diagnostic orphan so to speak, right? They did occur, but they were rare. Um, the bulk of people just kind of like grandfathered along kind of with their diagnosis. Um, did I get around to answering your question? Sorry. I might you have gotten did. No, you did. I think it's really interesting because again, it speaks to the importance of all of us as clinicians staying up to date on this stuff myself included, where it's like, oh, you hear something in passing and you go, oh, I should learn about that. And then you don't, uh, because life. And I think in these conversations with you, with Dr. Torcato, with Dr. Wu, speaking to these differences and how they're kind of fundamentally altering the mental health landscape, because it's always relative to the population behind it instead of it being something static and unchanging. It's viewing it as fluid, and then we need to stay on top of that fluidity. Mm -hmm. And again, the one thing that's been fascinating to me and kind of my work with ICD and some of those studies that we've done as part of it, um, when we look at how mental health professionals organize these disorders, they're actually remarkably consistent with each other, like more so than we really ever expected to find. And they're not the same as what the classification system is. <laughs> and what was really cool to me is that that held true for what country people came from. So we've done studies like looking at comparing U.S. clinicians to people in Brazil and Mexico and China and, you know, like pick your India, pick, pick your area. Um, and the structure that clinicians created was almost the same. Like, in fact, it was a 0.9 correlation in my statistical world, that sort of correlation is like, okay, you did the math wrong. Like something didn't happen right. Like there's no way that's a real correlation. It was. Um, the structures that clinicians were generating are basically the same. They're seeing the same things um, is what that tells me. Um, and so there is a certain fundamental language that mental health professionals are kind of thinking in. Certainly there are cultural differences. Absolutely. Um, but what's really fascinating to me is that there was so much similarity. I find myself saying during this conversation, interesting so many times because it just, that's really interesting to think of myself and the way that I think about things as United States clinicians to imagine somebody in New Zealand who is breaking down information in a similar way is very interesting to think about. Um, Jared, for our listeners who are tuning in and saying to themselves, I want to learn more about this. I want to pull on this thread. What's the best way to do that? I've got some great options for you. So one, like I had mentioned, if you just simply Google search ICD-11, what you'll do is you'll go to the actual version of the ICD-11, the statistical version, and you can just browse your way through it. Um, it's kind of a fun way to like explore the Z codes or kind of what they've become, right? Um, and that's a good resource because, oh, actually, one thing I should mention, um, all versions of ICD products are completely free. So there is no going and buying the manual like we kind of do with DSM. Like, this is a product for the public good. And so WHO provides all of these things for free. Um, I should mention, 
the um, CDDR, right? So the clinical descriptions and diagnostic requirements for ICD-11, right? is presently, so we're recording this in September of 2023, it is presently in the hands of the WHO production. So it should be released, like it could be tomorrow for all I know, like it it could be any day now. So by the time people are listening to this, it very well might be in the world and you could just go and download it for free. Um, And so that would be a great place to start, honestly, is just getting the manual and familiarizing yourself with it, looking through it, seeing kind of what differences might exist there. Uh, We didn't have time to really kind of get into the nitty gritty of some of those things. And there's a lot of concrete differences, Um, but that would be a place to start. For those who want some more structured learning, um, one of the things our group has done is develop something called the Global Clinical Practice Network. We use this for some of our field studies, but it also has become a dissemination method. So we could kind of turn back what we learned and kind of give that back to the clinicians out there in the world. Um, To access it, um, the website is gcp.network, spelled out, N-E-T-W-O-R-K. On there, you can find free trainings for the ICD. So you can learn about what the ICD-11 looks like, learn about the major differences that exist between ICD-10 and ICD-11, and kind of major diagnostic areas. Um, To access those, all you have to do is just sign up for a free account, Um, and you can kind of um, peruse those to your leisure. For those of you who are, again, kind of more academically minded, there's also a list of all publications that have been kind of released about the ICD-11. So any kind of academic output that we've had um, is also listed there. And so you can go and find all of those articles if you'd be interested in learning more. Um, For folks who might want um, a more guided tour, (laughs) um, I also um, curate a bibliography through Oxford Bibliographies in Psychology um, that talks about a lot of the background that we just went through, as well as kind of annotates and says, here's some key readings and here's why you want to go check them out. Um, And so that would be another resource that people might be able, um, might be interested in accessing. So it would give a little more structure to kind of finding additional information. Thank you, Dr. Keeley. And for our listeners, again, this is Dr. Jared Keeley. For folks who want to get in touch with you or learn more about you, what's the best way to do that? Best way is probably through email. Um, So my email is jw. K-E-E-L-E-Y at V as in Victor, C-U dot E-D-U. Fantastic. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Keeley. You've planted so many seeds that I know my brain will be turning over in understanding really how all of these pieces fit together. Thank you for joining us and for simplifying some of this. Because again, I think many of us didn't get this education and it's helpful to hear it uh, so clearly from a fellow clinician. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Beth. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.